We're going to um, pray just now and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, you tell us in no uncertain terms in Proverbs 2 that we are those who, are, who ought to accept your words, to store up your commands in us, to turn our ear to wisdom and apply our hearts to understanding, to cry out for insight and cry aloud for understanding and look for it as if it's the most valuable thing in all the world. And in doing so, we will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Lord, we cry out now. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Give us understanding into what you would have us learn from 2 Peter and by your grace, the power. The power by your spirit to put it into practice. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 15 years ago, a group of men from my uh, local church, my sending church in Dundee, thought it would be a great idea to run a marathon. Uh, There were 12 of us in all, and we sat around one evening enthusing each other. Wouldn't it be great, we said. We'll be in exquisite shape, nothing will wobble when we run We'll, we'll get to visit cool places that are, that are marathons in places like Barcelona and New York. You know, we'll do it together. We'll be friends for life. Hey, and so the enthusing went on. Now, the following Saturday morning, we gathered at the Riverside football fields to start our training. Let's just start with a 10-mile run. We think we can do about a third of a marathon. I know that's a little bit less than a third, but we'll, we'll run about 10 miles. We can do that two miles in. Into our very first run, six were walking, two were feigning injury, two were just lying flat on their backs about 300 yards behind us, and the remaining two runners were lapping us, just to rub our faces in it. And all of a sudden it hit us, this, this, this idea that we had, this great idea, it just wasn't going to be easy at all. It wasn't going to be easy. In fact... What our little run revealed to us that we really lacked the energy, we really lacked the power, we really lacked the stamina to run. And the enthusiasm of achieving marathon success just totally drained away. And in the end, only two of the 12 went on to run a marathon. The rest settled for something less. I mean, most of us settled for just occasional bouts of exercise. And a couple gave up altogether, just resigning themselves to an unhealthy life and a pretty high-scoring BMI, actually. But um, now, now, let's go back. Imagine, imagine, imagine that first Saturday morning at Riverside Football Fields in Dundee. Imagine, it's your, it's your imagination, okay, that Mo Farah turns up. Right? And Mo Farah turns up and says, right guys, I've got something for you that will help you to run the New York Marathon. I've got the right kit for you. So he gives us the right shoes, swanky shorts, all the you know, streamlined vests. That's pretty gross. But. And, and he says, and I want you to take this pill. Now, I know that's a little bit controversial <laughs> just now, but I'm not talking about cheating. But this pill contains all of my energy, he says. All of my strength and stamina. And if you take one of these, you'll finish the race. You'll be able to do what you set your heart on doing. Now, what kind of difference do you think that that might make to the guy's feigning injury? Or the guy's 300 yards back, flat on their back? 
What, what difference would that make to the motivation or belief of those whose hopes of running a marathon were just kind of crushed or into, crushed by disbelief? Well, it would make all the difference, surely. No longer would we be cynical about our ability because we've got, we've got an expert strength and stamina. No longer would we be moaning about our training. We'd be bouncing along the road in no time. I think the little story illustrates something important about the Christian life. When we become Christians, we turn from sin and turn to Christ. Because we see sin for what it is as something vile and totally inconsistent with what God has designed for us. And we turn to Jesus and see him as utterly glorious. In a sense, we look up to him, we love him, we're enthused about becoming like him because he has shown his great love for us in sacrificing his own life for us on the cross. So we start off on this Christian life like a race in a sense. It's referenced in that way many times in the Bible. But in no time, we become aware of our weakness. We look at this target of Christ-likeness with, with some kind of disbelief. And then maybe we think, actually, if I just clean up some of the big things in my life, then that will just be enough. And we can easily settle for something less or give up our spiritual disciplines altogether, finding things so hard that we just consign ourselves to being spiritually flabby and inconsistent. Maybe we say, maybe you've said it yourself, even as you've seen banners up here in our vision, part of our vision is for us to grow in Christ's likeness. And you, you look at that target and you look at Christ and his holiness. And maybe you've, maybe you've put the effort in in various ways, but, but you say, I just don't know if I have what it takes to do this. This can be tough. I feel weak. Well, the Bible says, and 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 in particular say to us tonight, that's just not true. It's just not true that you can't do it and that you don't have what it takes to do this. Because 2 Peter 1, verse 3 actually tells us that you've got everything you need to be able to do this. Look with me at 2 Peter 1. I, I just think this is utterly... Incredible. I think this is a wonderful passage. I mean, the whole of this first chapter is really trying to say to us, look, here is the life of godliness. Here's what it means to really follow Jesus. And Peter's preaching a sermon to us in this, and I want to take it in little bits. So just three and four tonight. And here we see just two things in particular, two main points. The first will be a little bit longer than the second. First of all, he's given us his power. And secondly, he's given us his promise. God's power, first of all, is the very source of our sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness. And the thing that Peter wants us to see here is that the power to grow in godliness is provided by God. Look with me at verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So when it comes to growing in godliness, we see that God is the ultimate energy provider. His power, his energy, is ours in constant supply. 
There is no risk of shortage. You never need to look around for any other resource. There's no need for dual fuel in the Christian life. We have everything we need from one source, our great and generous God. He gives us power. And not just any power. Look at how this power is described by Peter. It's quite rare to see power described with a word like this. It's divine power. Now what happens when divine power is in operation? Well, things change. Things change wonderfully. We saw that at creation. There wasn't anything. God spoke and everything came to life. When the people of God were stuck by the Red Sea with a bloodthirsty Egyptian army in pursuit, what changed when God said, Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide it? Well, by by God's mighty act of power, his people were delivered. It's divine power. And Peter's saying, this divine power is yours in constant supply. That means that disbelief can be put aside. That, that that counters us when we say, I just don't know if I've got what it takes to live a godly, Christ-like life. We do. Because the power to help you deal with the presence of your, the peer pressure of your friends is divine power. And Peter says it's yours in constant supply. The power to subdue lustful desires that you feel when you have access to a screen or someone else's body is divine power and it never runs out. The power to control your tongue that gossips people into disrepute is divine power and it's yours by the bucket loads. The power to overcome timidity and boldly share your faith with others is divine power and it's yours on tap. We say, I just don't have what it takes. Peter says, his divine power has given you everything you you need. We say, I'm weak. I just don't feel strong enough to do this. Peter says, his divine power has given you everything. Everything you need. Everything. The question tonight then is, who are you going to believe? Who who are you going to believe? Whose word will you trust? Your own or spirit-filled Peter writing an errant truth? God has past tense. It's already yours. You're already the owner of this. He's given us everything we need. And we noticed, even as we did a little bit of text work earlier on, how that comes to us. This power is ours through, specifically, the knowledge of him. Verse 3, who called us by his own glory and goodness. It comes through the knowledge of Jesus. So the power that God supplies us with comes through knowledge. Knowledge. Knowledge is seriously important to Peter. He opened the letter with it to make that clear. Make it clear that salvation comes through the knowledge of Jesus. Did you see that? Grace and peace, just look up at verse 2, are yours in abundance through, here's the means, the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. He'll close the letter to make it clear that sanctification, our onward progress towards godliness and Christ-likeness, also comes through knowledge. At the end, turn over the page. You don't have the page open if you're using your text. That's the downside of that. Verse 18, let me read it to you of chapter 3. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So you realize then, 
with the way that Peter bookends this letter, how important it is to grow in knowledge. And how important it is then to read God's words. I wonder if you've joined the dots yet between a growing knowledge of God and a godly life. For the way God's word and in what we know of it, just it, it leads to faith. Say, oh, that makes sense. I now understand what is going on in this situation in the world. Or, oh, wow, I now understand the struggle that I have with this particular aspect of sin in my life and recognize that it's not acceptable, therefore I have to change. That's what knowledge does. Knowledge leads to change. Knowledge, knowledge leads to faith. Truth, believed, leads to change. That's why we read our Bibles not just for information, not just for ticking a box, but so that we might be changed. Transform us. Now, I have to say that knowing doesn't guarantee godliness. It doesn't. Satan knows an awful lot and is very orthodox in what he knows about Jesus, but he certainly isn't holy. But I suppose it is safe to say that ignorance guarantees ungodliness. Not reading. Not thinking it through together. Not hearing God's words expounded, open thoroughly and explained will guarantee ungodliness. So if you feel like you're not growing in Christ-likeness, or maybe you would say, actually, I do feel like I'm regressing in this Christian life. I feel like I'm actually starting to give up on things. I was doing better in this particular aspect of my Christian walk a year ago, and now actually... I'm a little bit more indifferent. If you feel like you're giving up trying to be holy and giving into temptation more easily than you used to, ask yourself, am I reading my Bible? Am I looking at the scriptures that testify about Jesus? Am I understanding the gospel and what God has for me and has promised me in his words? Am I listening to it being preached, reading books that explain it and Letting my heart be flooded with joy through understanding. So that even the affections of my heart are being turned away from the things that are attracting my attention to the, to the one who ought to be. So we should put a high value, if you want a, an application point, on growing in the knowledge of God. It's G.I. Packer who said it's possible to practice godliness Impossible, sorry. It's impossible to practice godliness without a constant, consistent, and balanced intake of the word of God in our lives. That's why we preach from the Bible week after week. That's why there are notices in your bulletin encouraging you to be a part of growth groups. That's why if you're not attending growth group, even if you're signed up for one, you ought to be because... Keeping yourself at a distance will not help you grow and will not help the people in your group grow if you're disconnected. And growth groups are not tea parties. They're not for superficial chat. If, if all you're doing is studying the Bible there just to say a few things for information and chat, you're doing it wrong. You might as well not be there. Every person in the room, even in growth groups and here on a Sunday should be committed to searching the scriptures in order to help each other change, to help each other grow, to be less ungodly and more godly, to be more and more like Jesus. And there's always more to know. God's word is unfathomable. 
Now, I don't want to give anyone the impression that we're working on the basis of half-known truths here. We're not. We're being clear. And neither is it necessary to be, you know, to have a you know, 320 of an IQ and actually to understand the gospel and to be able to live out the Christian life. No. Um, someone has once said that the word of God is shallow enough for a baby to paddle in and enjoy, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. It's true. We know the truth in all its simplicity and know salvation and joy. Yet there are depths to be explored unfathomable depths. Do you know how we came to have that word unfathomable? I can't even say it. Ferdinand Magellan in 1521 was in the process of leading the first ships to try and circumnavigate the globe and he attempted to sound the depths of the central Pacific Ocean. They were worried about um, sinking their ships of course. And he took six lengthy lines together and attached them to a cannonball and lowered the cannonball until the line ran out down to 400 fathoms or about 2,400 feet. And Magellan concluded that the ocean was immeasurably deep, literally unfathomable. Now with the help of sonar, we know that it's not unfathomable at all, but the scriptures are, the study of the scriptures is So when we come to the infinite richness of the gospel, we are like sailors going out in a rowboat, trying to tie pieces of rope together, trying to understand the depths of the gospel, but constantly finding ourselves wowed by something new. Things that God, by his grace, has revealed to us. Things that make us say like Paul in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Now, we know how sinful we are. We, but we don't perfectly understand how sinful we are. We don't perfectly understand how sinful we still are and continue to be. And we can know that God is holy. We don't perfectly understand how holy God is. Or we know that we have a heavenly inheritance, but we don't perfectly understand how great that heavenly inheritance is and what it will look like for us when we get there. These are all things that we can explore by turning our ear to wisdom, tumbling around in this thing called meditation, the word of God in our heads and trying to figure out what does that mean? Coming to a point of understanding and marveling again at the, the, the glory and the power of our Lord and God. So a deeper knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness will help us grow and help us love. In fact, those two words, glory and goodness, show us, how, show us what we come to know. It's Jesus Jesus who is glorious, Jesus who is good. And if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. Have you discovered Jesus to be glorious and good? Um, Maybe you don't know him at all. Maybe you've never really explored this word of God that I'm talking about tonight. My encouragement for you is to do that. Ask someone to read it with you and realize that it's only in coming to see the glory and the goodness of Jesus and coming through a knowledge of him to God, that you can be saved. For without him, we have no power to change. We have no ability to deal with the sin that rules us and ruins us. There is no way to deal decisively with guilt and shame. 
that we experience by our wrongdoing. We find no answer to the deepest longings of our hearts for something more. There's no hope in death. And you're not even in the race. You're dead on your back. But by turning away from sin and turning to Christ for forgiveness, you're made alive. And the journey of being changed into his likeness begins. We must turn from our sin. We must believe in Jesus. Now I want to show you the second thing that we see. We've seen the first instance, what God has given us to help us. For those of us who just say, I just don't know if I've got the strength to do this. God tells us that he's given us his power. But we also see that God has given us, secondly, his promise. There is help and certainty in sanctification. Through these, so that is through his own glory and goodness, so the benefits of believing and the benefits of his goodness just continue being poured out on us. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through the promises, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So God has not only given us his power to drive us forward and help us change, he's given us his promise. Promise to help us in the process of change and promises to help us look forward. Promises of what, what, what is at the end when this earthly life is done or when Jesus himself returns. And when you think about what a promise is and what it's intended to do, it opens up this text for us. You've made promises, I'm sure. Someone may have made a promise as small as, you know, promising, uh, promising a parent that you'll tidy up your room. It could be something as significant as the vows you make on a wedding day. When someone promises something to you, what they do is they give you their word for the future, don't they? They, they don't give you the reality there and then, but they assure you that one day you'll have it. That's the way a promise is meant to work. And the power of the promise is that it makes you look forward to receiving it, doesn't it? So you walk through life with a sense of anticipation and a sense of trust in the one who made the promise that one day you'll have what they promised. So Peter then reminds us that God has made promises to us that hold out for us the prospect of godliness. It is not some random pursuit. It is something that will bear fruit. When we walk in God's ways. One day we will be a true reflection of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be truly conformed to his image. We will be like him as he is. Now let me ask you, do you have that reality now? Are you a perfect reflection of the radiant son of heaven? If I asked your flatmate, friend, parent or spouse, what would they say? No, we, we have the promise, though, that one day we will have it. And the good news for us in this text is that God always keeps his promises. Now, why does Peter tell us this? He's telling us this because he knows that it will help the people here that he's writing to and people like us who read it a couple of thousand years later to start saying no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. And he says, this is a thing that will help you participate in the divine nature. That's what 
what participation in the divine nature basically means godliness. It's pursuing the right things. It's not saying that you become God. It's that you become like God. You look to Jesus and you take on his image and his character. And you start to produce the kind of fruit that we see in him in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The kind of fruit that the apostles and the rest of the New Testament tell us we'll see when we're walking with Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit. We're going to think about that a bit more in a bit more detail next week. The other aspect of it, of course, is not just participation in the divine nature, but escaping the corruption of the world. This is the flip side of participation in the divine nature. It's making sure when we become like Jesus, we're not becoming like the world in its character. Peter reminds us, of course, in verse 4, that we are those who have escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desire. So he's saying, don't go back to it. That's not what you do when you escape something. I mean, think about it. What, what does it mean to escape something? It means to break free. What does a person do once they've broken free from something? I like World War history. And a few months ago, I watched an amazing video of, uh, of a, a video report of life inside a prisoner of war camp in Austria. And the story of a daring escape from it. There was a guy who was a French lieutenant told how they had smuggled a camera into the camp. So not only had they escaped, uh, they had uh, the bravado to, to film their escape as they were doing it. I love that. They kept a video diary of it, and they showed you them digging the tunnel, which was about 80 feet from where they bore down, all the way outside the perimeter, and, up, and 132 of them escaped. It's a huge number. They had broken free. Now tell me, what do you think they did as soon as they emerged on the other side of that perimeter fence? Do you think they said, wow, well, climbing through that, was a, that tunnel was a little bit mucky. I think, well, we, we'll just sit down, we'll have a wee rest, you know, we'll clean ourselves off. No, they bombed it. They flew, they fled, whatever. They, they ran away as fast as they could from wherever they were. To escape, they got as far away from the enemy camp as they could. And they put every ounce of their energy into making their way towards home. And that. That's what God's word calls us to do too. And God supplies us with the power to do that. To not only participate in the divine nature, but to flee the corruption of the world. It's corrupt. It's going nowhere. It's going to be judged and burned up, the Lord says. We'll see that in 2 Peter 2 and 3. Having escaped sin, we are to flee from our enemy sin and put every ounce of our energy into making our way towards home and getting ourselves ready for going there. And that's Peter's encouragement for us. Are you participating in the divine nature? That is, do you see yourself growing in Christ-likeness? I'm going to talk about this more next week. It doesn't need to be some incredible you know if you're going to graph it it's like I'm becoming like Jesus whoa wow I'm really holy now sanctification is more progressive and gradual than that by experience but are you participating in the divine nature by seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ or is it just not even on your radar 
God has given us everything we need through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who's called us because he's been good to us and shown his glory to us. And he, because he's called us, has interceded before the Father for us and the Father has given us everything we need. His spirit who lives in us. The strength to stand up under temptation and bear it. The strength to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. And he's given us power to escape corruption and participate in the divine nature. Who are you going to believe? I just don't know if I can do this. God says you have everything you need. His power and his promise. And next week we'll look at the effort that we put in. Let's bow our heads and let's pray and give him thanks.